this day, this very day, 45 years ago, 1977, something happened that tore a seam in the global fabric of music. It was a funny-looking album, a bit gaudy, a motorbike roaring out of a graveyard, but goodness me, the songs, the anthems, Meatloaf, released Bad Out of Hell. His first collaboration with composer Jim Steinman and producer Todd Rundgren, one of the best-selling albums of all time, 43 million copies worldwide. It still sells 200,000 copies per year. Who buys it? Who knows? But the first single, this song here, you took the words right out of my mouth, failed to chart when first released. Let's go round the panel on this one. Who has it? Susan hornsby Gallic. Oh, I'm too young, man. I'm just trying to. I was like listening to that, thinking, "What's what's the next word? You know, what's the punchline?" I have heard that, and I love the beat. <laughs> you have heard but it somewhere. I'm not overly familiar, and I certainly don't have the album. Um, well, Phil O'Reilly, let's just sort of uh, provide a bit, uh, uh, an alternative proposition to this. I went not- out. I went out sweaty palmed to my yeah. local record shop. Yep. And handed over my fifty cents or whatever they were back in those days. And took it home and immediately put it on the turntable, and it was magnificent, wasn't it, Wallace? It was unbelievably what, good. What, what was it about this album? What, well, it was what, a completely what, new sound, wasn't it? I mean, it was amazing, and it was uh, that, that sound you're just playing is. But when he died the other day, uh, I, I went back well, and streamed it on my yeah, well, a year ago, or so ago. Yeah. I, I took the opportunity to get it on my streaming service and listen to it again, and it was still as spine tingling just a just a few a year or two ago as it was when I first listened to it. So it's one of those. One of those times, to your point, where the music is so special and so new, to, to certainly to listeners like me, that it defined quite a, a big part of my young life. It was I, I remember listening to it, like a bit like um, uh, Supertramp, Crime of the Century. Which came out oh, no, no, it's not, no, 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 it's not different. <laughs> you can't compare Meatloaf to Supertramp. Uh, Phil, they are very different. Super Tramps, you know, it's, it's a bit of a C minus, isn't it? But, um, but Meatloaf there, it's an A minus, or an A. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, one of the greatest songs ever in your face, says someone here. 24 to 5, the panel RNZ National, Phil O'Reilly and Susan Hornsby Gallic with me today. The percentage of New Zealand university students who are men has hit an all time low. Currently, 39% of our local university students are men, which is down from 42% six years ago. At face value, this might sound concerning, but the number of male students actually increased over the past two years. The number of female students has just increased more. So is this percentage worrying or is this a positive sign that we may strike a fairer gender balance in our universities? Uh, to break it down for us, we're joined by Universities New Zealand Chief Executive Chris Whelan. Kia ora, Chris. Good afternoon. Yeah, so this is an interesting, very interesting article from John Gerritsen this morning. Uh, and you were quoted as saying, look, it was a worrying trend. Why is it worrying if the number of male students has actually increased? At the end of the day, we've got to look at what the long-term trends are. So um, what we're seeing is quite a large gap in uh, the number of young men getting university entrance compared with young women. So it's about 58% of young women versus about 45% of young men. That means that the doorway into degree-level education is certainly not open from the outset. So it's what are the kind of the pathways that we're providing our young people. 
And we're living in a society which is pretty rapidly changing. So 25 years ago, exactly a third of all jobs in the New Zealand economy were kind of knowledge worker jobs. Now it's it's 66, 67%. So uh. rapidly changing economy and you don't really want to be left outside of education or training uh, if you want to be part of that economy. Now you said it's not good for New Zealand if we are seeing large numbers of undereducated young men. What we're sort of seeing is a is a couple of factors together. So the university entrance figures I've mentioned, but also we've gone from uh, over the last 15 years very high youth unemployment to now comparatively very low. So it was about 17%. It's now down below 10%. So there's, there's jobs to walk into straight out of school. But what we know is, you know, when the economy takes a downturn, immediately uh, it's going to be those people in insecure, casual, unskilled jobs that are you know, going to be facing a high degree of job insecurity. And that, you know, is going to create some pretty major long-term problems if it's predominantly young males. I'll get get in a panel for this uh, very, very shortly. I just want to, because one uh, statistic really jumped out at me, um, an important factor in a young person being able to get to uni, of course, is uh, university entrance. Um, And look look at the figures there. Last year, 48% of the girls who left school had UE, but for boys, that figure was 34%. That's that's something, that's extraordinary. It's worrying. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think, um, you know, we've got a whole lot of different factors that sort of determine whether you will or won't, you know, get into higher education and the kind of jobs that that, that unlocks. But your schooling is an absolutely critical part of it. All right, Susan. Yeah, I, I think that's really concerning too. And I wonder, you know, there's a, a loss of um, hope um, possibly arising out of sort of COVID and what that has done, but also the financial inaccessibility. You know, so many young people now are um, expected and pressured to go out and start earning immediately and just don't have that opportunity, which um, I think is um, a key area that our government need to look at in terms of additional support. And and look, I would certainly agree with you. I think we've got a situation where it's easy to walk into, you know, uh, a semi-skilled or unskilled sort of job and start earning money out of school. And, you know, it's great getting money. But what isn't often understood is what that trade-off is. You will earn about one and a half million more over your working life if you get that two or three years of post-school either training or education. It doesn't matter whether it's a trade, you know, becoming a qualified electrician or plumber or becoming a dentist or an accountant. You know, they're both going to deliver much, much better long-term outcomes. Phil? I actually think it's an emergency. Uh, I think I don't think making it free or paying people to go to university will help. There are some counter-cyclical issues that go on in labour markets that have been discussed here. If, if labour markets are tight at the margins, you'll get less people doing industry training or university education and more people going into the labour market. But this is actually a long-term trend we're seeing, and it's 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 coming out in some really worrying statistics around things like the OECD PISA uh, surveys, which show New Zealand educational uh, achievement across boys and girls falling over from being really leading the OECD to being just the middle of the pack now, and, and no great trend there. You've got increased suicide rates amongst the young right now. So you've got a real disengagement. That's been going on for a long time. This is all long trend stuff. You've got a real disengagement, and that's particularly the case with young men. Uh, and so what, what we need to do is turn our minds to how we have a different conversation in the, in the primarily in the, uh, in the compulsory education space about getting young men engaged in schooling and in, in, in 
and learning at school because by doing that we'll get more doing university entrance and being encouraged to do more tertiary education. So this this is an, a national emergency for us that we need to sort out if it's, and it's, if it's, it's about the to, schools. Before we go to Chris, if it's an emergency, uh, why don't you look at uh, um, uh, lubricating those pathways, particularly with regard to the price of entry at university. I just think it'll be at Why the margins. Why do you do that? I think it'll just be at the margins. I mean, you need to you need to have a conversation about getting young men and boys in schools more interested in academic education, and that's a long run issue. You, you, by paying someone a thousand bucks isn't going to help you. I think it's really about you don't think? making sure at, at ages sort of ten to thirteen they are interested in maths and they're interested in digital and they're interested in literacy and numeracy and so on. Uh, and we need to create an education system which actually encourages them to do that, and then you'll get more of them turning up in in university. Chris? Uh, look, I agree. I think so much of it is around those expectations, their family expectations, their peer group expectations, their, the support and the counselling that schools put around young people. Uh, you know, to some extent it is the barriers. You know, there are perceptions that it is getting more expensive to get a higher education and why not go straight into an easy, you know, comparatively well-paying job straight out of school. But, yeah, it's a long, long-term trade-off and it does create real problems. All right. The other so there, that is an issue that the uh, you know it's uh, what is it uh, the, that, that that status actually quite um, something isn't it? Currently, thirty nine percent of our local uni students are men, uh, so that's uh, trending down. But let's um, also acknowledge the the positive in this, Chris, and that is that uh, the representation of uh, women uh, in university in higher education is um, is up, uh, and it can only be a good thing. Absolutely. And look, um, you know, anything which basically creates a more equitable society where people are able to achieve based on their ability, not on other factors, has just got to be good for everyone. Um, but it's got to be a society where everyone can participate. We don't cut out some groups for the wrong reasons. Can I ask a question, though, sure. Chris? Um, because we um, have had a higher percentage of women uh, in tertiary education for some time, and it's not translating uh, into them receiving sort of comparable pay outcomes and opportunities in the actual market. Agreed. And look, we're seeing exactly the same statistics. There are a range of factors behind it, um, and uh, unpicking them is obviously sort of complex, but, you know, things like the types of jobs that women are getting quali- getting degrees in, uh, you know, fields like nursing or teaching, uh, where there's disproportionate numbers of women, uh, versus, say, fields like engineering, uh, you know, we know that there are still disparities there. Uh, we know there are factors around um, women being able to get through into higher roles uh, and some of the penalties that come from taking time out for families and things like that. They're all, um, you know, major and, and significant social issues that need to be addressed. Um, you know, we're not there yet. That's Chris Whelan, uh, the University's New Zealand Chief Executive Kyoto Chris. It's 15 away from five. The panel, RNZ National, Francis Manawatu, says to get into higher learning, you do need to be able to afford it. There's a lot of kids who aren't able to walk away from the weekly pay packet. It costs always, even if it's possible to earn more over your lifetime. The cost uh, does tend to prohibit, is uh, Francis' point of view. The panel, RNZ National, Susan hornsby Gallic and Phil O'Reilly joining me uh, this afternoon. Well, is the era of the political walkabout at risk? You might even have been the recipient of a 
handshake from a political leader, uh, even given over your baby or a wee one for a little cuddle and photo, although that doesn't happen so much anymore. I'd love to hear from you. Text me 2101. But Grant Robinson, Minister Grant Robinson, Labour, has revealed the extent of his abuse, been screamed at and called a paedophile, uh, and says that in campaign mode, they might have to think differently. National have, however, no issues with walkabouts at this stage. Chris Bishop saying they are opportunities for the public to engage and interact with the public. With us is Dr. Suze Wilson, Senior Lecturer at Massey University. Kia ora, Dr. Wilson. Kia ora, Wallace. Kia ora, Suze himself. Kia ora. The good old campaign walkabout, such a huge part of the election cycle. And that's why I chose this story, because I couldn't imagine uh, an election uh, without one. Iconic. Um, be a bit sad if MPs didn't think they'd be able to, you know, walk in a mall down the main street, your local cafe. What have we come to, Susan? Yeah, I think it would be incredibly sad and not good for our democracy because, you know, as much as possible we want voters to be able to meet candidates, engage with them, raise their questions and also make sure that, you know, candidates actually have a really good feel for what are the concerns of the voting population. And if everything just, you know, becomes, if you like, stage-managed events or, you know, the only kinds of questions... Um, politicians get asked are through the media. You know, yeah. we we we, lo- we risk losing that kind of important connection. Yes, because you have that level of spontaneity, don't you, with the walkabouts? Mm-hmm. I can recall a couple of instances where uh, it didn't get didn't go quite. Well. In fact, it went quite quite pear shaped. But that was that was part of the the campaign. It was part of the stories, I guess. Um, you know, it was part of seeing um, them in their in everyday life. Yes, yeah. I mean, we all like to be able to eyeball leaders and kind of get a sense of who they are in those, I feel like, less guarded moments, see how it is that they, you know, engage with people when they're asking them, you know, potentially tricky, tricky Mm. questions. And the walkabout, you know, and, you know, just town hall meetings generally play an important role uh, in that process. But, you know, our MPs, well, people standing for parliament, they also have the right to be safe. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to criticise them, them if they are feeling unsafe, that they are having to take actions to keep themselves safe. The, the issue is those that are making them feel unsafe, they need to change their behaviour. Susan, and an indication of uh, the modern era uh, of where things have become, uh, to use that word, so toxic that uh, even the walkabout might be at risk. Mm. I I think it's really sad too, but I think that things might have changed fundamentally and irreversibly. I think the um, COVID mandate riots have um, changed the complexion of politics in New Zealand such that you've now got this group of disenfranchised people, uh, and it only takes one. I mean, we look at what happened recently in Japan with the assassination of the former Prime Minister, which was absolutely tragic. Mm. Um, I think that um, for politicians to be out there wandering around freely, unfortunately, uh, may have to be a thing of the past because, you know, as Suze points out, um, they've got a right to be safe. And I'm not sure uh, currently in the environment in New Zealand that uh, they could feel safe. So, I mean, I think, you know, Grant Robertson and um, politicians generally have every right to be concerned about it. My goodness, pretty strong word of theirs, Suze. It could well be a thing of the past. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I think the thing that we have to understand, therefore, is that a very small minority is denying 
the opportunity for the rest of us to engage in normal political discussion, not discussion that you know is involved with threats of violence or acts of violence. So you know the the, if, like, the attention needs to go to those people that are engaged in essentially extremist rhetoric or extremist action, who think that they can gain political influence through the use of violence, and for us to keep saying that's not okay, that's not okay, and wherever we see that happening, particularly if it's people we know trying to reach across them and say, hey, you know, like, it's fine to have your opinion, but expressing it in violent ways is just not, you know, that's not that's not what democracy is about. We Phil. have to be able to engage in a more civil fashion. Yeah, I think we should... We should, the, the question for me is whether this will calm down over a period of time as the, there's a whole COVID kind of uh, discombobulation that's been going on mm. uh, calms down and goes away. I suspect some of it will, mm. but you know, given what's been going on with you know with uh, you know the, 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 the going down the rabbit holes with the with the algorithms that we've just spoken about previously, maybe it maybe it won't go away completely. And I certainly, from my perspective, I think one of the great health factors of our democracy is the fact that our politicians are very accessible. We can actually see them uh, in, in very unvarnished terms, including them being very boring and, and you know hopeless or whatever it might be, or brilliant. You know, the, the fact we can actually observe that is a really healthy part of our democracy. I don't think the walkabout will completely go away anytime soon, but I think it may have to be moderated. I think it may okay. have to be modified. But I'd certainly hope that as we come out of COVID and return to some sort of normality that at least it will abate. Okay, final thoughts, Suze? Well, that's the hope, but we know that people who are deep down the rabbit hole are not engaging with reality. And, you know, as much as we can, if we have any connection with people caught up in that, let's try and bring them back into the fold, bring them back into an understanding that, you know, the government is not trying to kill us. Um, there isn't a global conspiracy, you know, that caused all of this stuff. It's just kind of bring them back into the fold and feel part of our communities again. Kia ora, Dr. Suze Wilson there from Mass University talking about uh, whether or not the error of the political walkabout uh, is at uh, risk. We'll find out, I guess, uh, next year. You're coming up soon, isn't it? Uh, eight to five, the panel RNZ National. Now, this Sunday... 24 walks will take place across all regions in Aotearoa, raising awareness for retired racing greyhounds. It's called the Great Global Greyhound Walk, and the majority will be hosted by greyhounds as pets, or GAP, a national adoption program for ex-racing hounds. We wanted to hear more about the work they do across New Zealand, so we're joined by GAP's rehoming coordinator for the Upper North Island, Lisa Judge. Lisa, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on this afternoon. Look, it's such a pleasure. I had never heard about greyhounds as pets. And I don't know where I saw I think I might have saw, seen some sort of billable or, 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 or announcement somewhere. But tell us about greyhounds as pets. How did it begin? Okay. Well, um, Greyhounds as Pets, as as you've said, is one of four national rehoming uh, organisations who work with the greyhound racing industry to rehome those those greyhounds who have finished their racing career. Um, some some of the hounds don't even get to the racing stage. They're seen as not they're um, deemed to be non-competitive. Some just retire due to old age, and of course, some do retire due to an injury. 
So um, basically we work together with the organisation as these dogs are coming out of their racing um, experiences and we work to find wonderful retirement homes for them. Yeah, and I just think it's wonderful that there is a way to rehome uh, some of these greyhounds. As you say, some uh, retire by age, some by injury, and uh, let's face it, uh, there has been issues around the um, the nature of uh, how they're kept and the nature of greyhound racing itself, Lisa. Why is this important? The rehoming of the, the greyhounds is really important because obviously when they finish their racing, they are still... Um, maybe between two to five years of age and they still have a lot of life left to um, right. experience oh. the world. Yeah. Um, is, does this um, convince you, Susan, to get a pet? Um, not a greyhound. Um, yeah. But um, I, I do have a question and I'm not sure I should ask this, but um, Lisa, what happens if they're not rehomed? I mean, you talk about these um, dogs who don't uh, cut the grade or... Um, they retire. What happens presently if your organisation didn't exist? Well, we don't really need to address that question because there are um, four rehoming organisations. As say, Greyhounds as Pets has a nationwide uh, reach outreach. Sorry, we have uh, people based up in Auckland, down near Levin, and in the South Island. So basically, all of the dogs that are allocated to us as an organisation are rehomed. Some take longer than others. Just. Um, just due to the um, number of applicants for people wanting to rehome greyhounds. So, um, yeah, they, they are all of the ones that are allocated to the rehoming organisations are rehomed. That's great to hear. And what sort of pets do they make? Mm. They, they make amazing pets. Um, they kind of come, come to people as... As, you, as you'd like to say, a, a giant overgrown puppy, because, um, of course, they've had maybe a fairly uh, limited lifestyle prior to coming um, out into the out into the, the their retirement I suppose uh, most of them live on rural properties they've um, socialized or interacted generally mainly with only other greyhounds um, and so when they come out ready for retirement or rehoming they are learning to become become parts of members of the, the wider community they are loving and goofy and regal oh. they're kind of like a whole bundle of things all in one and they start to unfold and kind of show you their personality almost in layers as they they kind of get used to being in a home and just all the wider things that they they have access to as and when their world just widens for them I just love greyhounds. I actually just love just love this and the fact that there is a rehoming uh, sector, if you like. And I'm just reading here, they enjoy the finer things in life, like a warm fleece and a soft bed. Phil O'Reilly, I can see you, greyhound beside you. You've got a little bit of meatloaf on the stereo. Mm-hmm. You're having a nice little um, Central Tiger Pinot, and life is good. Well, actually, I would have a great... I think they're lovely dogs, to your point. Uh, but regrettably, I've... I've in, I've got in my life an ex racing dashend. Uh, oh. He's he's had a long career of lazing about, uh, and we now have him at home, so we can have a further career of lazing about, uh, <laughs> which is good. But otherwise, I, I certainly would look at a, I would look at a greyhound. I mean, I, one of the challenges here, isn't it, that that you know, there's a real controversy around whether greyhound racing should actually exist, uh, and uh, there's there's a knock on impact to that. Of course, if you don't have greyhound racing, you won't potentially have so many greyhounds. So, do, do you guys think about about the future of the greyhound racing fraternity as an issue, or is or that's something that's not to do with you, and you're really just about rehoming them as they come out of their racing career? Um, yeah, yeah, that's probably your, your second point. There is more more. Um 
relevant to us as a rehoming organisation. Yeah. We we uh, take on the dogs as they retire and we find them their most appropriate homes based on their personalities and what they need for their best retirement. Um, yeah, and, and whichever way things go, we will be there and we will be rehoming these dogs as and when. Yep, good call. Oh, kia ora, Lisa. All the very best for the uh, great global greyhound walk. Uh, online, where are, where, where are you online? How can how people reach you? Yeah, you will find us at uh, nz. And if anyone does want to come along and check out the uh, great global greyhound walks, they're in 24 um, areas over the country, as you mentioned at the beginning. And on our events part of our website, there is information about all of those. So it's a great opportunity for members of the public, if they're interested in finding out more about greyhounds, come along Very with good. some of our gorgeous hounds. Greyhounds as pets. Very, very good indeed. Well, someone said, stop giving Phil Riley a hard time about Christmas. So I thought, you know what? You're right. Let's start Christmas now stop, on the stop, panel. Stop. <laughs> very good. Thank you to you both, to you both, Susan and Phil. And Nick Truebridge is in for Lisa Owen on Checkpoint tonight. No relation to the great designer David Truebridge, by the way. See you tomorrow at 3.45. Till then.